Welcome back to the program. It sometimes seems that every generation has its disease. In earlier generations, it was tuberculosis. In the 40s and 50s, the fear and scourge of polio gripped the nation. In the 80s and 90s, the fear and reality of AIDS overwhelmed the national consciousness. When we look at these diseases, the death tolls from them, the way they were perceived, the medical mystery, the research, the treatment, and the movement towards a cure, we learn a great deal not just about the march of medicine, but about the culture of a particular time and place. We see how disease evolves and what it says about our collective character. We're going to talk about this in the context of the AIDS epidemic with my guest, Dr. Susan Ball. She's Associate Professor of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College and Assistant Director of the Birnbaum Unit, Center for Special Studies at New York Presbyterian Hospital. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Susan Ball to talk about her book, Voices in the Band, a doctor, her patients, and how the outlook on AIDS care changed from doom to hopeful. Dr. Susan Ball, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. It does seem that that the AIDS epidemic, particularly the late 80s and 90s, really did define the time, that it really became part of, of the consciousness of a particular time. It's, that was so beautiful what you said. I think it's so true. And it, it was, for me, a big reason why I wrote Voices in the Band because I think today I'm, you know, I'm still practicing, I'm still taking care of patients with HIV. There's something very different about the care now in that we really can control it. It really is a, a chronic illness. Not to say people still don't die from HIV and AIDS, but that period of time, the 80s and 90s, were really uh, so revealing for all of us uh, of what our, our society was about, what the culture and the politics were, were fraught. Um, it, was a very, it was a very tough time for, for so many patients and their families and, and in medicine. Um, and, and I really wanted to, for us to remember some aspect of that, which is partly why I wrote the book, but also because we, we learned so much and we were able to do so much in the, in the face of a, a, of a difficult challenge. Um, and, and, and I don't want that time to be, to be completely forgotten or lost. What you said in the, in the beginning was so beautiful. Talk about it from the inside, because it's very easy to sit here and, and look at, even historically, that period and see all of the noise, all the activity, all, as you say, the politics and everything else that surrounds it. What was it like from the inside, dealing with it every day, treating the disease, and, and in some ways trying to not be affected by all that surrounded it? Yeah. Uh, you know, medicine and being a doctor, you're really taking care of individuals. It's people taking care of people. So it's, it's something that's so personal because it, taking care of someone, it's such a, uh, such a vulnerable, tender, intimate time. And yet it was a time, certainly the 90s, um, in the beginning of the 90s, when AIDS was just raging and, and so many people were, were dying in the hospital for, for us as providers. It, w- it was very challenging, intense, sometimes extremely sad. I was su- super fortunate to, to find the HIV center where I work. We have a very devoted uh, multidisciplinary care team. So I worked with nurses, social workers, nutritionists, psychiatrists. We had a chaplain. And together we could try and 
do our best to care for the patient in the, at a time when we really had no medicine. And so individually, we, we each became involved with our patients and, and cared for them in, in the ways that, that we could. For example, the social worker might help the patient get, get access to a food bank or get their electricity turned back on or, or arrange for a helper or a, or a friend or a companion to go visit the patient. Um, I could sometimes use antibiotics to treat an infection, but I, I often couldn't treat the HIV itself. Um, and, but having that team approach really made the work more, more doable for all of us because I think alone, individually, it could be so overwhelming as we saw so many families and, and individuals overwhelmed by the disease. There was also, and you write a lot about this, the stigma of the disease at the time. How did that relate to those that were taking care of AIDS patients? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think in, in so many, you know, we saw this a little bit with the Ebola, but with patients with HIV for certainly throughout the 80s and, and 90s and into today even, there there's a lot of stigma about about having HIV. Patients are... They're fine if they have hepatitis or cancer, but having HIV is somehow just this this thing to be shunned, and that was really in full force, and not just out in the community, but in the medical community too. We had there were times we had a very tough time getting our patients a a biopsy from a surgical service or or even a consultation from a given service because some some of the attitudes were you know these are people who some that some said, oh, these are people who deserve what they get, or others were, oh, they're too contagious. We don't want to infect others, and you know, I it was not. Um, how do I put this diplomatically? It it really did. It brought out the the best and worst in in medicine, and and as I say, we we saw this with Ebola. People um, really rising to the challenge, and others really not not wanting to be part of it or or not wanting it to be part of their their community. So that was particularly strong um with HIV. I would I'm I'm happy to report that in the medical community there's I see very very little stigma around patients with HIV now. We really are able to people take take good care of the patients. I I would say universally. In what ways, if any, did it change medicine? Did it change the relationship between doctor and patient? Did did it have a lasting impact? Oh, that's a tough one. I, you know, I think um, there was. We lo- I think we learned so much from the illness, and we learned so much about what it really means to take care of people. I'd like to feel that we we all learned that everybody learned that. Patients who came came to this illness, you know, nobody's ever at fault, and nobody really is is trying to be ill. And and when people are ill, they're suffering. And I think it to me it brought out um, compassion and an understanding that that we all need to to take care of each other. We all need to to care about each other and and help one another to take care of of patients. You know, we learned a tremendous amount. Um, objectively in medicine about virology and about the immune system. And that's really made enormous headway, really transformed a lot of fields of medicine um, in cancer care and and, uh, in virology, as I say. But uh, so, and those are, those are certainly lasting changes. There are other, other changes that came about in terms of drug uh, approval that, that was transformed because of the AIDS epidemic. Previous, previously, the 
the road to getting a new drug approved was very long, took very many years to, because of, of safety and tolerability constraints. And those are still in place, but they really have been able to, to trim down how, how long and arduous um, a drug's um, path to approval needs to be. And that was very important because mm-hmm. patients were just really needed to have access to effective medication. And or in the 80s, there was none, and it took really some, some dramatic steps to, to make that pathway to drug approval much more smooth so that we could get effective drugs um, on the market for, for patients with HIV. It's interesting that there's a powerful or seemingly powerful contradiction in all of this, that there was this sense of hysteria, all the things that we were talking about earlier, the, the political nature of it, the way people, the country was, was gripped with fear about it, and yet, in many ways, that helped contribute to additional resources, additional money, additional research, which ultimately made it a manageable disease. Yes, I, you know this is something that i that I don't talk about particularly in the book, but you're right the The activism on the part of the gay community was was um, crucial to some of these these um, changes politically and on the on the drug approval level. There was also, I think, a human factor. I think of um, Ryan White, a young man who had hemophilia and was infected and whose case or his situation sort of came to light in 87 and, and 88 when he, as a young man, I think he was 12 or 13, he wanted to go to school and and the school system in Indiana thought he this boy with HIV should not be in a public school because what you know what if he infects people, and it just belied sort of the general uh, hysteria about it because people were were ignorant. I mean, there's no way a kid sitting in a classroom is going to infect other people with HIV, but but there was this fear, but. Um, Elton John and Michael Jackson took up the case of, of Ryan White and getting that, that message out to the public, like, here's a kid, he wants to go to school. Yes, we should have compassion for him and we should, there's no way he's going to be infectious to somebody else. We have to, he deserves to be in school and he should be in school. And that ultimately led to the, the Congress passing the Ryan White Care Act, which is still in place, which provides for funding for people with um, lesser means to, to get access to treatment and, and, and medications for HIV. So th- these were um, situations that were started out um, um, poorly, poorly viewed, and yet things, things turned around because of, because of attention and, and, and public awareness. It's interesting because on the one hand, we would think that it made us smarter about disease and how it spreads <laughs> and how it works. And yet yeah. when we look at the hysteria that surrounded, you know, fear of Ebola, I'm not sure that we got a whole lot smarter. No, I know. Sometimes you think, oh, my gosh, what did we learn? Um, at the same time, I think that these we do learn a little bit. We take these lessons forward. I think um, the hysteria stuff is... It's very tough, especially looking looking at Ebola. And yet, at the same time, you think um, you realize that how many thousands of people died of AIDS before before the government started really doing something about it. Whereas, you know, you think of the 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 SARS or the the flu virus or Ebola, the the government reacted pretty quickly to these to these concerns. 
One of the things that you talk about that, that is so interesting in terms of understanding human nature and disease were people that either couldn't or refused to or, or didn't for whatever reason take the proper medicine, take the regime that they were prescribed, and, and why that was. It's just this is something that is still continues to plague us. I, I must tell you, I, you know, I still, I'm still full-time practicing clinician, and I still have um, patients in my practice who are not doing well and who do not take their medicine. Um, you know, they might take it for a few days and then miss it, or, or, or just some people just really, really struggle. And trying to parse that out and figure out how best to help those people is one of our biggest, biggest challenges. You know, some, some of our patients just come from um, socioeconomic backgrounds that really have, are just full of challenges. And, and so being organized or having a, a sense of um, commitment and to, to doing something on a regular basis is very, very tough for, on them. So having an illness like HIV, you know, sort of uh, magnifies that, that trouble that they have. It's very frustrating. There are other people um, who want to stay, feel like drugs are toxic and, and don't want to take medication because they feel like drugs are toxic. That's tough, too, for, for me as a provider because I've seen so many people die from HIV and AIDS, and I know that um, these drugs are, can really save people's lives and can help them live healthy lives for years and years. So there are a number of issues that, that um, go into why a patient does or doesn't take their medicines. And it's, it is one of the biggest factors because we know that patients who take their medicine consistently, um, they'll do well and they, their, their lifespan, their, their um, longevity is basically the same as someone without the, the infection if they get into care early. So it's a big, this is a big challenge for us and has been for years. Have we reached the end of the line in terms of pure AIDS research at this point? In many ways, as you were referring to before, a lot of the AIDS research gave us tremendous insight into treating other kinds of diseases. Are we now in a situation where research and other diseases may filter back in terms of helping with AIDS, but have we reached the end of the line in terms of pure AIDS research? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, the, the, recently we are, there's some very exciting research into potential cures for HIV. And by that I mean we're, the science is looking for ways to um, get the latent viruses that are sort of hiding in the body, get them to show themselves so that they can be eradicated. Because as it is now, a patient needs to be on medicine forever because if they stop their medicine, those latent viruses, of which everyone has a few hiding out, those latent viruses will, will start replicating in the absence of medication. So the goal of therapy now in the, in the research, which is, as I say, it's really quite exciting, is to find those hidden viruses and, and, and flush, flush them out so that they can be eradicated and potentially really cure, cure the disease. So I would, say, I would say we're not at the end, um, and, and the potential for cure is real, um, whereas for, for many years we thought it would, would be impossible. Um, but now we really are, people are really talking about this, so it's not going to happen tomorrow, but I think that's where the research um, in part is going, is going right now. It's also interesting to note and to think about, and I'm sure you deal with this, this every day as a clinician, 
that there are those people that you're treating today, those people recently infected, that have no sense of or no understanding, really, of what it was like in the 90s. Yeah, that's true, and that's uh, that's a sad thing, a hard thing to see. For me, as a as an older clinician, seeing when I see a, a, a newly infected young gay man, a guy in his early 20s coming in, you know, they those... Those guys were babies in the 90s. They really don't remember um, what some of the older patients remember of, of losing all their friends, for example, losing, losing every, you know, their entire peer group. So these young gay men, they, see, they may see HIV as you know, no big deal. You take some pills, no big deal. But on, when, I, when they do come to my office, I must say that, that is, um, they may not know exactly what went on in the 90s, but they are not happy to be there. People, nobody wants to have this, this, this illness, and yet there is a, there's the perception of a nonchalance out in, the, in some communities where people aren't, either they're aware they're infected and are not protecting their partners, or they may not even be aware that they're infected. There's a, quite a significant population of people who, who don't even know they have the virus because they, just, they don't get tested and they don't, they don't, it's not on their radar. Which is which is unfortunate because the number of new cases in the country has not dipped much in the last ten years or so. It's, it's it's staying the same, which is too bad. Is that a fear of medicine and and even public health that in fact because there is this perception that there is a cure or that it's just a chronic disease that that the infection could take hold in in a stronger way? Um, you know I. It's it's hard to say. I think there's a nonchalance, as I said. I think there's also sort of an obliviousness, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, the in young people think nothing's going to happen to them, and think they can tell if somebody has HIV or not. Um, and then there's also the this idea that it you know it, it it couldn't it couldn't possibly happen to me. And oh, if it does, there's just I'll just take some pills. I, I think there's there's an a lack of real awareness and, and I think a lack of good education about about what this illness is and how it how it manifests and how it how it really can be such a chronic illness. There's 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 good medicine now for HIV. We do always worry about resistant virus because patients can can have resistant virus and can spread resistant virus. That has, is something that we're always concerned about in choosing ju- drug regimens for patients. It's not necessarily a fear that a, that resistant virus um, will be um, getting out into the community, not as much as we, we worry actually about resistant bacteria getting out in the community, mm-hmm. which is also a real a real concern these days. How has treatment changed given the changes that we've seen in healthcare over the past 25 years? Well, um, just in terms of pills for, for our patients, when the protease inhibitors were approved in the mid-90s, really launching finally some effective treatment regimens, initially patients had to take oh, probably eight or ten pills at a time, usually two or three times a day. And so patients were taking upward of 18, 25, sometimes 30 pills a day to control their HIV, much less if they had something else like diabetes or high blood pressure. So people were taking enormous numbers of pills um, with, with constraints on when they could eat or be on an empty stomach or needing to eat food, et cetera, et cetera. These days, um, the treatment for HIV 
um, probably the most commonly used medication is just one pill once a day that's very well tolerated. So that's an enormous change for our patients. That's really been been a great a great thing. And, and patients, the regimens are very well tolerated, very effective, and 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 much much easier to take than the, than they used to be. What about in terms of cost within the context of all of this? Uh, that is not something I'm such a great expert on because where I work is most right. of the patients are coming to me with uh, various insurances and a lot of public assistance insurance. So, um, again, Ryan White funded insurance. So I'm not directly involved with, you know, one. this pill costs $5 more than that <laughs> pill. I do know that in the hepatitis C world, for example, there's been a lot of talk about the, the expense of some of these newer newer treatments. So that's a factor. And I and I know as each drug is each new HIV drug is developed, there's always an issue of how much it costs and and what how are we going to um, fit this into the regimen and should they should patients be be offered these newer treatments when the newer treatments tend to always cost a little more than the older treatments. Um, and also the, the the availability of generic medications and and how how we can make more uh, generic medications available to patients so that the to try and keep the costs down. This is a super complicated issue, and I'm, I, I honestly I try and steer a little bit clear <laughs> of it. Um, but it is it is something that is very much uh, very much something that a lot of people are concerned about. Talk about it, and, and you do talk about a lot about this from a personal perspective, having seen the scourge in the, in the late 80s and ni- early 90s, all the people that did die from it, and seeing what's going on, all the things we've been talking about today where it is manageable, and trying to keep those two experiences both separate and together. Talk a little bit about how that impacts you, how it's impacted the medical community. My, you know, for me personally, my work is very different. When I started at the HIV clinic, it was in 92, and as I say, that was a really dramatically bad time in the HIV epidemic. Thousands of people were dying every year, and the numbers of of people dying every year was just going up and up. And I spent the bulk of my day in the hospital visiting, seeing, rounding on my patients who were inpatients, who were people who were many of them in the process of dying from HIV. And then we got effective medicine and we got the bulk of our patients on treatment. And so my my work really moved to the outpatient setting, into the office. So I, I spend much of the majority of my day these days in the office setting taking care of patients. All of my patients have HIV, but for many of them it's you know, a checkup and saying, you know, do you have enough medicine? Are you taking your medicine? Making sure that their their numbers are good and they they have no problems. But I'm also spending a lot of time on on primary care things like high blood pressure, cholesterol, getting my patients to stop smoking. So so my job has changed quite a lot, and so that's also the 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 atmosphere around HIV work has has changed because of that. It really there was such a um, there was such an urgency about it in the in the early 90s or and throughout the 80s, and patients were so sick. Uh, so there was really a much more um, um, 
difficult and challenging aspect and intensity to the care that's that's not there to the same degree anymore. Individually, certainly, there are patients who who become ill and do poorly, or you know, it's not to say I have every single one of my patients is a is the picture of health, but it's really quite a different quite a different um, overall um, experience for me now. Dr. Susan Ball. Her book is Voices in the Band, A Doctor, Her Patients, and How the Outlook on AIDS Care Changed from Doom to Hopeful. Susan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, thanks very much for having me. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 